2 Kings 14. Where we'll start. Let's pray again. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the study and the meditation of your word tonight. We ask you to teach us and walk us through these things. Father, we see this not only as uh, learning about the historical, but, but Father, looking forward to and being prepared for what is to come. Lord, through your servant Paul, you said all these things were written as an example for us. So that we can look back and we can see how Israel behaved, what they did, the good and the bad, and we can learn from that. Father, I pray that as we study through that you will uh, not, Lord, allow us to be increased in our dismay with Israel, but to love the people of Israel more. As we study through their history, a hard history and a difficult, a difficult series of life lessons to be learned. Father, we pray that we also will come to love you more as we wander through these verses and seek to understand. Reveal yourself to us and help us to walk out of here praising the name of Yahweh more than when we came in. Thank you for your word. Teach us now, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're still studying the kings of the north. Israel and the kings of the south, Judah. But things are about to speed up. In the next two chapters tonight, we're going to cover ten kings. Three in Judah, seven in Israel. As that nation, the nation of Israel, hurdles literally toward the brink of its destruction. In fact, when we finish tonight, we will be down to the last king of Israel. Next week, we will see the destruction of Israel and how that all came about. Tonight, we're going to begin slowly... But as the chapter picks up the pace, and as we get into chapter 15, the pace will quicken as we go. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 14. In the second year of Joash, the son of Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. This is Judah's king number 9, Amaziah. He was 25 years old when he became king. Can you even imagine that? It was, it was more fantastic that we had Joash last week, seven years old when he became king, but at least you kind of get the feeling that this kid had advisors around that would, were training him up. This is a 25-year-old guy who's stepping in to the throne of Judah. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadin of Jerusalem. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did according to all that Joash, his father, had done. Verse 4. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So Amaziah, ninth king of Judah, gets a smiley face. Okay? He gets a silver star on the top of his assignment, but he doesn't get the gold star. That would only go to those who walked like their father David, which Amaziah does not do. But he does get a gold star. He does a good job. He's a good king. But here's the difference. Amaziah, like his father Joash before him, gave the Lord his hands. He did right by the Lord. He acted righteously. Whereas David gave the Lord his heart. And that is something that that we we would do really well to learn the difference between. Giving the Lord our hands and giving the Lord our hearts. I think a lot of us in the church confuse the two when we give the Lord our hands. 
Yes, I will serve you. Yes, I will stack chairs. Yes, I will move things around. Yes, I will be on this team or that team or this ministry or that ministry. I'm giving you my hands, Lord. And we see that with Joash and now with Amaziah after him. They do right by the Lord. They give him their hands. But their hearts are not given over fully to the Lord. That's the big difference with David. David absolutely loved God. He was a flawed man, we all know that, but he loved the Lord, and that's the difference. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. That's good news. That means if I can spend myself on loving Jesus, he'll take care of the sin part. David wrote in Psalm 18.1, one simple line, he said... I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. My strength. That's the gold star standard of David. Not just giving our hands to the Lord, but giving Him our hearts. Giving Him who we are. Jesus asked for that. He said, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.4, so it was all the way back in the Torah law, Jesus said in Matthew 22.37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And he phrases it as commandments because he's talking to a people who are used to giving God their hands. Hands to the commands. But he's saying if you can change the hand work into a labor of love, everything will be different. The law and the prophets will be taken care of. Because it's all about loving David was that gold standard of kings because he was a lover of God. Amaziah, good king. Joash's father before him, good king, but not great kings. They were followers of God, but not lovers of God. If they were lovers of God, they would not have tolerated the high places. They would not have tolerated idols. They would not have put up with things going on in Israel at the time that took people away from God. David and what he did wanted to drive people to God. He wanted the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. He wanted the temple built there in Jerusalem so all the people could come to the place where God had put his name. Well, Amaziah is our case study as we begin tonight and keep this all in mind. He was a follower of God but not a lover. Verse 5. It came about as soon as the kingdom was firmly in his hand that he killed his servants who had slain the king, his father. You may remember from the last story, that's how Joash died. He was a good king, but he got a little off track toward the end of his life and he ended up a conspiracy against him and murdered. And so this king, now Amaziah, his son, kills the servants who had slain the king, his father, but the sons of the slayers he did not put to death according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses as the Lord commanded, saying, The father shall not be put to death for the sons, nor the sons be put to death for the fathers, but each shall be put to death for his own sin. It's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 24.16 and good king Amaziah knew the word well enough to understand he had the right in godly justice to put to death those murderers of his father. He did not have the right to kill their sons. Although culturally speaking that's what he should have done. That's what the nations around would do. That's what those kings would do. If there was a threat to them you wipe out the whole family. In fact I think we've been seeing that going on in Israel. We saw that with Italia last week, how she wiped out all of her grandchildren to protect her power. The Lord said you're not to do that. 
His actions as a good king were contrary to the culture of the day where the children were often murdered, punished for the sins of the father. I, I, I was thinking about this. Cheryl, you may have to help me with this, but the, the slave trade that goes on in Ghana that we have just recently been aware of. And some of you ladies who were at the uh, Women of Faith, I believe they talked about it there, didn't they? No. They didn't, okay. In Ghana, in some of the tribes, um, there's a slave trade that goes on where the tribal chieftain, if something's going wrong, if someone's sick, or somebody dies in the tribe, the chieftain can find a young girl and all the blame can be put on her. And he will take her from the family. Well, they say that families... He picks what family's fault it is for whatever happened, and they are penitent for to make it okay, their family okay is to give their daughter. And that's it. So they have to pay a price for whatever problem has has hit the tribe, and that young girl then is taken, and she's either put into the sex trade, or she is sometimes just taken as yet another wife for the tribal chieftain, four, five, six, seven, eight years old. And so even today in the world, we still see this going on. And you might say, well, that's Ghana. At least, at least it's not America. And America's not like that, really. There's a cultural invitation that is wide open to us in America to blame our parents or our past for our own sins. To say that the child is now carrying the, the sins of the father... We talk about delving deeply into yesterday, thinking that it will heal tomorrow. It's, it's Oprah's mentality. You've got to go deep into the past, early crib stuff, you know, to figure out why you are the way you are, why you're so messed up. And the Lord said in Ezekiel 18:4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul whose sins will die. You may remember that verse where in Exodus 20 the Lord says, I'm going to visit the sins of the Father on the third and the fourth generation. What's he talking about there? He's saying, I'm going to visit each generation. And I'm going to see if that generation on its own is following me or not. Or if the sins of the Father have carried over. He doesn't come just to judge the children based on the sins of the Father. But we draw this this idea that, that we think that going into the past, in fact, I'll put it this way, exploring the past... It leads to ignoring the future. See, Satan wants us to explore the past. The devil wants us to spend a lot of time back there. But my parents did this to me. My brother or sister did that to me. Uh, An uncle, an aunt, someone when I was a child did these things to me. What did Paul say? Philippians 3, verse 13, he said, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The best is ahead of us. That's what God calls us to. Not to wallow back here, but to walk toward what's coming. Well, Amaziah does well. He exhibits godly justice and godly mercy. And in verse 7 it tells us, then he goes to war. He killed of Edom in the Valley of Salt 10,000 and took Selah by war and named it Jophiel to this day. Selah, you Bible students may remember this, Selah is another name for the rock-walled city of Petra. And so he went up against Petra. Not only did he take out 10,000 of the Edomites, but he went up against Petra, which is a very impenetrable city, a difficult battle, and he took it. And he renames Petra Jophiel, which literally means the blessedness of God. Which is an interesting name because modern day Petra, which by the way is a stop on our next Israel trip, 
Modern day Petra may very well be the place in the wilderness of Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 that is talked about. When the Lord says, I'm going to take my remnant of Israel and I'm going to provide for them three and a half years, the last half of the great tribulation, I'm going to protect them in a place in the wilderness. A lot of Bible scholars think it's Petra for very good reason. If you're curious about that, go listen to the Revelation study, chapter 12. We get into that a little bit more. But this single verse, verse 7, this battle against Edom and, and Selah, is fleshed out quite a bit more. In fact, there are several things as our study goes on tonight that are fleshed out more in Second Chronicles that we'll come back to and deal with later on, not tonight. But in Second Chronicles 25, we learn that Amaziah has 300,000 soldiers at his disposal. So when he goes to war, he's got a big army, but he goes and hires 100,000 mercenaries from Israel in the north. Brings them down literally out of the tribe of Ephraim until this prophet, this man of God, comes up to him and says, that's not a good idea. You've got your 300,000. You don't need 100,000 from Israel. Well, why not? Listen to this. Second Chronicles 25, verse 7. The man of God says, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel. You see, things have gotten so bad in the north that the Lord's not with them. And he says, you don't want to let Israel go with you or any of the sons of Ephraim. He says, if you go, do it. Be strong for the battle, yet God will bring you down before the enemy. For God has the power to help and to bring down. Well, Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do for the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? He's already paid them. They're mercenary money to come fight. What do we do about this? I love the, the man of God's answer. He says, the Lord has much more to give you than this. You're so worried about the money, like God can't replace it? You know, if you're giving to a work of the Lord or to something that you feel is a mission or something important in the world, and suddenly you find out the whole thing was a hoax, and you're out that money, I think the Lord would say, I can take care of it. I can provide for you. Don't worry about that. So Amaziah, 2 Chronicles 25, tells us he dismissed them, the troops which came from, to him from Ephraim, to go home. But their anger burned against Judah, and they returned home in fierce anger. Amaziah does the right thing. Now, we don't know this from 2 Kings 14. We get it from 2 Chronicles. He does the right thing. He listens to the man of God. He says, all right, I'm not going to use the extra 100,000 troops. We'll send them on home. They can keep the money. It'll be fine. The problem is that these hired guns of Israel are so angry that they're let go that on the way home, they murder 3,000 people of Judah. They ransack and pillage the land on their way back home. Which reminds us that doing the right thing doesn't always bring about immediate good. In fact, doing the right thing often brings the very opposite response that we're hoping for. It brings evil upon us. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to happen. That's something when you sign up to walk with Jesus, you need to know right up front, persecution is part of the deal. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you might say, well, so Rick, is that what happens to you when you're persecuted? Do you rejoice? (laughs) Not hardly. I don't enjoy it. Until I come across a verse like this and I hear Jesus saying, Hey, this is something to feel good about because you were just doing what I told you to do 
You got in trouble for it. All right. That's good news. After the fact, I can slow down a bit and say, yeah, 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 that is good. But it doesn't always feel good. It didn't feel good to Amaziah. Rather than rejoice, he wants revenge. He comes back in this glorious battle, taking out 10,000 Edomites in the, the rock-walled city of Selah, Petra. Comes home, finds out that Judah has been ransacked by these men of Ephraim, and he is absolutely ticked off. He wants revenge. Look at verse 8. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, or Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let's face each other. Drop the gloves, buddy. It's time to fight. You're going to pay for what's happened. This is what he's saying. Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, a little parable, he says, The thorn bush, which was in Lebanon, sent to the cedar, which was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. But there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trampled the thorn bush. What's the parable mean? I think it's obvious he's saying, Amaziah, you're a punk. You're like a little thorn bush, and you're going to come up against the cedar of Lebanon. Don't forget, Amaziah is king of Judah, one tribe. But this Joash is king of Israel, ten tribes. A lot more people in the north. A lot bigger kingdom up north. And so, little thorn bush wants to fight the big cedar tree. He says in verse 10, You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has become proud. Enjoy your glory, and stay home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you, even you, would fall and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. So now we've got civil war yet again happening in the land. And verse 12 tells us Judah was defeated by Israel. And they fled, each to his tent. They come back, glorious campaign. And now every man in Judah is running, tail between his legs, back to his tent, in absolute and utter defeat. Then Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem and tore down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. He took all the gold and silver and all the utensils which were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, the hostages also, and he returned to Samaria. Amaziah was a good king. He showed himself willing to do the right thing in the sight of the Lord, to walk according to God's word, but he fails in this. Amaziah is overcome by his overconfidence. His pride is his undoing. And there is application here, good application, for us as believers. Let's just think about this for a moment. Amaziah's overconfidence led to national defeat. It led to national defeat, as we see in verse 12. Every man running back, back to their tents, scared to death. They had been in a moment of glory. And it was that moment of glory that led to their defeat. It was the overconfidence in what they had accomplished that led to their defeat against Israel that day. Listen, gang, it's not only the bad things of my past that I need to learn to let go of. It's the good things. See, I can go back in the past to deal with the bad things and wallow around back there, but I can also go back to the past of my glory days and think about how good it was back when. You know, we've talked about here, every now and then I mention the living room of the Gilmores and how good it was when we first started. And I'm sure for those of you who have been coming, you know, in the last few months or last year or so, you go, well, great. I didn't get to have any of that. 
What are you saying? Now that I'm here, it's no good? <laughs> That's not true. It's wonderful. The bridge is better now. It's, it's more glorious now. God is doing things. He has things ahead of us we haven't even tasted yet. And if we sit back there in the past, we will miss what God is doing in the future, what He's calling us to. So once again, I believe exploring the past leads to ignoring the future. And I think the Lord would say, Christians, don't get stuck in your glory days. Because when we go back to our glory days and the great things we've done, historically, we get stuck there. And we're unable to move forward in the Lord. Don't cling to the old victories. Don't sit back on the laurels. Again, Paul said, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The best you've ever done for the Lord is not back there. The best you can do for the Lord as you grow in Him is before you, not behind you. We're not done yet. And by the way, our confidence is not to be in our accomplishments. Our confidence is to be in our coming King. Jesus is my confidence. Not Rick. Not what my flesh has been able to accomplish. Not even in my most spiritual moments is my confidence based in this man. My confidence is based in Jesus who is coming back to get me. King Amaziah was overconfident, overconfident to his own defeat. Secondly, King Amaziah was overconfident to the point that he decreased their defenses. Verse 13 tells us they came in and they ransacked Jerusalem. They knocked down the wall. 600 linear feet of Jerusalem's defensive wall came down, leaving them vulnerable to further attack from other nations around. And that's what happens when I become cocky in my Christianity. My walls of defense begin to come down. I begin to think, I've got it covered. I can handle it. I I can do this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. He says, No temptation that has overtaken you, there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such is as common to man. In other words, everybody deals with the same stuff here. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so so that you are able to endure it. But don't forget this. It's the Lord who provides my way of escape, not me. It's still the Lord. Even the strength to run away from or get out of temptation comes from the Lord Himself. The defense in my spiritual life, it comes from the Lord. It's not my wits. It's not my intellect. It is not my strategic experience. Now Jesus did say in Luke 21, 34, Be on guard. So that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation, that means excess, like yesterday. I had a little excess. I I ate too much. I I really shouldn't have. I know better because when I do, I wake up at 2.30 in the morning, my stomach going in all directions and and that's no fun. At at, um, about 5 o'clock yesterday evening, we had an elders meeting last night, Cheryl made me this great Caesar salad with chicken in it. Oh, it's good. A little Caesar chicken salad. And I imbibed a little bit on some cherry Pepsi. And that was good too. And when Cheryl left the room, I had two bowls of Lucky Charms because that just sounded good too. <laughs> you know, we went over to Jeff's for the oldest meeting, and, and I didn't even tell you about this, Cheryl, but, but they had donuts from the new donut place in Anacortes. Yeah. Oh, they. <laughs> They were so good. And I started with a little corner, quarter of the blueberry frosted donut. Oh, it's really tasty. And I ate that and kind of made my way through that. And then I, I had another quarter. I think I ended up having a whole blueberry frosted donut. 
and some cookies. And then, <laughs> and then I came home and we sat down to just relax a little bit. And I was thinking, you know, I've had so much sweet, I really need a little bit of saltiness. And if I could just have maybe a plate of nachos, and so I ate a plate of nachos. Topped it all off with a, with a Milky Way and went to bed. So, this is what Jesus means when he talks about excess. <laughs> I worked out this morning. Yeah, I did. So, dealt with all that. I was, I was there, Ricky. I didn't see you there. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, I was out working my body. Anyway, so <laughs> don't be weighted down with dissipation. The excess of life, and we are we are full of that excess in America. I mean, let's be honest. Gas at 4:25, and how many of us have really slowed down our driving? Because it's what we do. We have to use. We are very excessive people. He says, don't be weighted down with that, or drunkenness, or the worries of life. And that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. He says, if you're weighted down with that stuff, if you're living either in the now or in the past, that day is going to surprise you. But he says, be on guard. Be looking forward. Keep your eyes open. Keep the defenses up. He says, it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Keep alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And if someone says Christianity is escapism, I say, absolutely. I want to be on the first ride out of here. I am looking forward to that great escape when Jesus calls us home. I am not some kind of, I don't know, military guy thinking macho that, oh, stay and fight. No, no. I want out. And I want out for good. But I walk with great confidence as a redeemed child of God. And yet if I start to think I've got it covered... I start to be confident in myself as opposed to in the redemption that comes through Jesus. Those defenses come down. I start to think, I can do this. I can see this movie and just ignore the language. I can read this book and just ignore the content. I can listen to this music and just ignore the places that it takes my mind. Amaziah's overconfidence did something else that is far more tragic. It depreciated their worship. Look at verse 14. We're told that Joash came in and took all the gold and silver and all the utensils which were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. He ransacked the temple. One week the people were able to come into the temple and worship there and all the gold that was used and all the preciousness and the richness of worship was there. The next week the temple, which had just been renovated by Amaziah's father Joash, the temple now is missing everything and worship was affected. And spiritual arrogance can do the same thing to us, gang. As we stand in sinful places, as we invite sinful things into our homes and into our lives, thinking we can handle them, our sense of worship begins to depreciate. Psalm 1, verse 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. And listen closely to this. I just caught this today. Verse 4 of Psalm 1, David writes, The wicked are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Chaff is that leftover. It's, It's that stuff that's not good enough to eat. In the barley or the wheat or whatever the harvest is, it's the stuff that, you know, they throw it up and it it just blows away. It's the husks and the the extra that nobody really wants. And he's saying, if, if we 
walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers if we surround ourselves and take this stuff in in our lives guess what ultimately we move from being healthy kernels of wheat to becoming just the husk the chaff and what does he say? he says the wind blows it away that word wind in the Hebrew you probably know is ruach which is the same word used for the Holy Spirit and I think that I can handle stuff but the reality is gang, God is spirit Jesus said and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth and one of the first things affected by spiritual arrogance thinking I can just handle the stuff of the world one of the first things affected is my worship it's one of the last places I want to go when my life is surrounded with the wickedness and the sin of the world it's one of the hardest things for my mind to transfer into when I'm coming out of dark places we're going to talk about this more on Sunday but I'm going to make this statement right now show me a person who has no use for worship and I'll show you a person who is useless to God Show me someone who says, I'll show up for the Bible study. I like the fellowship, but that worship time, I just don't need it. And I'll show you someone who is missing the whole point of everything we are about. You know why we study this? So that we can love God more. And love is worship. And that's the point. I'm going to get ahead of myself, so I'm going to save that for Sunday. But Amaziah's overconfidence depreciated their worship, and his overconfidence destroyed their freedom. As we see at the end of verse 14, that the hostages were taken also and returned to Samaria. They lost their freedom because he was so confident that that he could take down the enemy. And the same again can happen to us. I want you to contrast this with Jesus. The world doesn't get this. The world looks at Christianity and thinks it's a restrictive, killjoy religion. Why would I want to go to church every Sunday when I could be fishing? You know, why would I want to join that fellowship of people and all the rules and regulations and things I have to do? And they miss it. What Paul said, Galatians 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Do you realize, and I'm going to push this point just a little bit, do you realize that we are absolutely 100% free in Jesus Christ? His grace means I am so saved by His grace, but I'm free to do anything. I don't want to do anything. And this is what the world misses. I'm, I'm free to drink. To do that. I'm free to see pretty much whatever movie I want. I'm walking in grace, man. It's not my actions that are going to save me. I am free to live completely free. And as Paul said, all things are lawful. I can do whatever I want. But not all things are beneficial. This is, this is difficult to grasp. And as a younger believer, I, I would have rejected it, to be honest. I would have said, no, 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 I'm I'm free to a point. (laughs) But then i got to do some stuff. And the truth is, grace is so vast, I am absolutely 100% free. There's not a thing I can do to merit the grace that I'm given. And people say, well, if that's the truth, why don't you Christians lighten up on your whole holiness thing? Why don't you back down on the homosexual community a little bit? Why don't you pull back on all of your standards and religiosity well sadly many Christians have many in the church have lightened up on all of these things 
Because overconfidence in my spiritual glories leads me to take more and more license with grace. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. And Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And that's the key. Why would you, when you come to faith in Jesus, suddenly make some decisions about all the movies you watch? I pick on that one just because it's so easy. Why would you stop watching certain movies? Because you've given your life to Jesus. Because I will not be mastered by those movies. I will not have that content running through my mind. I'm free not to. I have been freed from sin so that I'm not bound to that stuff. I don't have to take it in. I have freedom in Christ such that I can say, No, I'm not going to walk there. I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to live for Jesus because it's better. I'm going to live by His law. By His law? Yeah. I'm going to live by His law because it's perfect. It makes me feel good. It protects me. It keeps the walls of defense up. It leads me in this life. I'm not talking about the boiling a young kid in in its mother's milk, you know, or any of the the weird stuff. I'm talking about keeping the righteous requirements that Jesus puts out before us. But the Lord said, man, that stuff just makes me better. It makes me more whole. And my holiness becomes happiness. And that's the freedom that we have in Christ. The truth is, the more license I take with grace, the more freedom I lose. And so we see with Amaziah, good king, but he gets overconfident, and it is his undoing. Verse 15 now says, The rest of the act of Jehoash, this is the king of Israel, which he did with his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, and Jeroboam his son became king in his place. We'll get to Jeroboam in just a minute. I want you to understand the reason why this is inserted here is the writer of First and Second Kings is writing chronologically. And so as he's talking about both of these two nations and their kings, he's trying to show, okay, well, at this point now, Jeroboam, I know we were talking about Amaziah, but Joash dies here. So I'm going to insert that, and then we're going to come back and talk. It's, I know it's difficult because there's a lot of back and forth between the kings, but he's doing it in a chronological fashion. And by the way, we don't have the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. That's not in existence. So it's not in the scriptures. What we do have is the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And I shared this last week in case you missed it, that when we get to Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, it deals with the kings of Judah primarily and only. Except that there are some kings of Israel and their dealings with the kings of Judah, but it's the book of the kings of Judah that we actually have. We don't have Israel. Why not? Well, hold that thought. We'll see. Now... Amaziah was a good king he just overestimated his own strength it tells us then in verse 17 Amaziah the son of Joash king of Judah lived 15 years after the death of Joash the son of Jehoahaz king of Israel now the rest of the acts of Amaziah are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah they conspired against him in Jerusalem and he fled to Lachish and they sent after him to Lachish and they killed him there And then they brought him on horses and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. It's tragic, but the people of Judah do what all people do. In their defeat and in their disappointment, they blame their leader. They are not happy with Amaziah. Oh, he had a glorious, glorious battle. But then he comes back and has such a tragic defeat that people want him out. Kind of like George Bush Sr. 
Remember back in the early 90s, the glorious battle in Operation Desert Storm. It went so well, his, his approval rating was through the roof. And within a year, he lost the election to Bill Clinton because of the economy. Because of one defeat. Everybody forgot about the glory. Well, that's what happened to Amaziah. His defeat overshadowed the glory and they blamed their leader and took him out. Verse 21. And all the people of, of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. You might know Azariah by a different name, Uzziah. King Uzziah, the tenth king of Judah. He built Elot. He didn't build a lot. He built Elot, the, the city of Elot. And he restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Now, I want you to skip on down to chapter 15, and we're going to come back up in just a moment. But I want to stay with Uzziah, and I want to stay with the kings of Judah for a minute. Chapter 15, verse 1. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, that is Uzziah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king. I don't even know if he had his license yet. And he reigned 52 years, notice that, 52 years in Jerusalem, one of the longest reigns of any of the kings. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Only the high places were not taken away. And the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death and he lived in a separate house while Jotham the king's son was over the household judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah or Uzziah and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah and indeed they are. And Azariah slept with his fathers and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David and Jotham his son became king in his place. Now wait a minute. If this king Uzziah is such a great guy, reigning 52 years, if he's such a great king, why did the Lord strike him with leprosy? I mean, that's what the Bible just told us. God struck him with leprosy. This was a punishment. What's the deal with Uzziah? 2 Chronicles 26 tells the whole story. Let me give it to you in miniature. Uzziah was a great king. In fact, you could call him a Renaissance man. This guy had his hands in everything. He extended the land of Judah to its furthest point. The southernmost tip of Israel is the city of Elat. The city of Elat is there today. And he's the one who originally founded that city. He drove back the old enemy of Israel, the Philistines, and other enemies around. He secured Judah. He was an architect. He was a builder, a vine dresser, a cattle wrangler, a lover of the soil, and he was even an inventor. The Bible tells us he invented mechanisms that they put on the towers of the walls of Jerusalem that would fire off shots automatically. Probably the first automatic weapons in the world. King Uzziah invented these things. He was an amazing king. And 2 Chronicles 26 verse 8 tells us his fame extended beyond his fame extended beyond or to the border of Egypt because he became very strong. He became too strong. And like his father Amaziah, dang, his pride was his undoing. Just like father, just like son. As Amaziah was overcome by overconfidence, so Uzziah's arrogance left him leprous. Here's what happened. Toward the end of his reign, Uzziah, he's just done it all. The people love him. He's a glorious man. He's an awesome king. And so like the kings of the nations round about, he says, you know what? I'm good enough to be a priest too. 
So he goes into the temple and he takes the censure and he is preparing to offer on the altar of incense. And the high priest comes in and all the other priests say, Isaiah, don't do this thing. You're not supposed to do this. Kings are kings and priests are priests. And you're not supposed to mix the two offices. And Isaiah there in the temple gets angry with them. How dare you talk to me like that? And boom, he had leprosy. And the rest of his life he lived separated in a room by himself while his son Jotham took care of the kingdom until the day that he died he died a leper forgotten in his room because he tried to mix the offices the Bible taught no man was to be king and priest simultaneously because no man could handle that kind of pressure no man could bear that on his shoulders save one Jesus Christ who we know is both king of kings and our great high priest a fascinating prophecy back in Zechariah chapter 6 In verse 11, the Lord said, Take silver and gold and make an ornate crown, like the crown of a king, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So put a king's crown on the priest's head and say this to him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on the throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. The council of peace, both king and priest. He will sit on the throne in the temple of Jerusalem, and he's talking about Jesus. And again, you students of, of these things, you know that the word branch I just love this it's one of those cool little serendipities in scripture the word branch in the Hebrew is Netzer where the name Nazareth comes from so the branch the Nazarene Jesus the Nazarene Jesus the branch and so the branch of Jesus Christ did spread out the branch will build the temple following the tribulation Jesus is going to be the architect and builder of the new temple And he will rule and reign from there, from Jerusalem, both king and priest. But Isaiah was not the man for the job, though he thought he was. So tragically, he ends up dying alone and as as a leper. His father had a pride problem. Isaiah had a pride problem himself. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How do we do that? How do we clothe ourselves with humility? Well, we've been talking about that already. The way we clothe ourselves with humility is by recognizing nothing good comes from me. My strength doesn't come from me. My intelligence doesn't come from me. My ability to understand the Lord at all doesn't come from me. My ability to walk as a follower of Jesus Christ, it doesn't come from me. My strength comes from the Lord, not by might, nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts Zechariah 4.6 there's some places we just can't go there's some battles we just can't fight and there are some things spiritually that we can't handle ourselves I love this little verse in Jude Jude verse 9 where it says that the archangel Michael is having an argument with Satan over the body of Moses talk about why another time but they're in the midst of this argument and Jude 9 tells us that Satan that that Michael doesn't even pronounce a railing judgment against Satan this is Michael Archangel Michael but instead what Michael does is he says the Lord rebuke you not I rebuke you it's not my power I'm not coming against you Satan no no the Lord rebuke you Michael's heart is right 
The Lord is my strength. His Spirit is where my power comes from. And when we recognize that, we remain in that place of clothed in humility. Because the Lord is everything good and strong and wonderful about me. It's all the Lord. Now skip ahead to the end of 2 Kings, uh, verse 32. Staying again with the kings in Judah. And we're going to go back and look at Israel. And trust me, it will pick up very quickly. Verse 32 of chapter 15 says, In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel. Now Pekah had a cold and was the first to introduce the Pokemon character of Pikachu. thought you'd want to know that. Sorry. How do, you, how do you skip by that? I mean, Pika, this is the guy's name. So he's the king of Israel. Jotham then, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, became king. He's the 11th king of Judah now. He was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Yerusha is short for Yerushalayim, or Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. We now have four kings in a row who have done the right thing in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father, Isaiah, had done. So we still haven't gotten back to the gold standard of David. We will. We will, by the way, in Judah, two kings are coming up that will act in accordance with David. They will love the Lord like David did, Hezekiah and Josiah. And there are a couple of great kings that I look forward to talking with you about. But the high places, verse 35, in Jotham's day, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now, commentators think he built that because he was trying to get the people to come back to the temple and to worship there, even though the high places were all around. So he was, he was trying, you know, work of his hands, not his heart, but his hands. And verse 36 says, The rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. In those days the Lord began to send Razan, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. Well, Jotham slept with his fathers. He was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Ahaz, his son, became king in his place. So that's Jotham. Now I jump ahead to King Jotham. Another, another one of a handful of good kings in Judah for one reason. He's a prime example of what we're talking about, and that is we need the strength of the Lord. And there's only one thing we know about Jotham when we jump ahead to 2 Chronicles 27, verse 6. All we know about Jotham is he became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. I really like the way that sounds. He ordered his ways before the Lord. It's what Paul was talking about, 1 Corinthians 9.27, where, where Paul said, I discipline my body and I make it a slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul has just gone about talking about his freedom in Christ, what we were discussing before. Paul said, I am free to do whatever. He says, don't we have the right to bring along a wife like Peter does? Don't, don't I have a right to get paid for what I do? Don't I have a right to, to get something back for all that I'm giving? But he says, you know what? I won't do it. I won't do it. I will make myself all things, I become all things to all people, he says, if I might just win one person to Jesus Christ. I will discipline myself, I will go above and beyond the call of duty, so that I can become more Christ-like. He's walking, he's ordering his ways in the walk of the Lord. Ordering his ways before the Lord. And that's what Jotham does, and that's all we know about Jotham, and it's a good place for Jotham to be. Now, go back to chapter 14. I said we'd start slow and pick up speed. So buckle up. 
Back up north in Israel, things are beginning to spiral out of control in the land. Verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and he reigned 41 years. Jeroboam. The first king of Israel was named Jeroboam. Joash, king of Israel, names his son now, Jeroboam, after that first king, after that wicked king, which tells you something of the state of this Joash in Israel. Verse 24 says, This Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Oh, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, and the prophet who was of Gath-hepher. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, there was, nor was there any helper for Israel. Now this is interesting to me. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. But he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. God used this evil man who was as evil as the first Jeroboam and did not depart from that wickedness and sin. God still used him to save Israel. Now, a couple of just real quick things to note right here. First thing to note is the internal evidence of Scripture as we see in the existence of Jonah. Now, there are people who say, Jonah and the whale, come on. He couldn't possibly exist. Well, first, or 2 Kings 14, verse 25, would disagree. And talks about Jonah, the prophet. This is the one and the same Jonah who was swallowed by the fish and who was spit up on the ground after three days. People say that's not possible. Well, internally, the Bible says it is. The Bible we know is true on internal and external evidence. The internal evidence is that it supports itself. It talks about you know, characters in various and different places and it supports itself throughout. The external evidence would be archaeology and history and geology and, and all those things. But the Bible stands the test of both of these external and internal evidence cross-referencing its own people and places. And you may know this, but Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, verse 39, He said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. So let me ask you, do you think Jesus believed in Jonah and the whale? Do you think Jesus believed that story? Pretty clearly He did. He goes on and says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So real is this story as Jesus recounts it. He says the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of this Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus verified the existence of Jonah. Second Kings verifies the existence of Jonah. So when we get to the book of Jonah the prophet, you can know, okay, this is legitimate. The Bible says so. But the second thing to note here is the internal testimony of saving grace. God saw the affliction of his people and would not, he could not blot out their name. As evil as they were, they had every right to be wiped out and God wouldn't do it. This and this alone, by the way, is why I believe Israel remains in existence today because of the grace and mercy of God. Because he will not, he will not go back on his word. He will not blot out this people. Interesting verse, Matthew 24, verse 34. Jesus in talking about the end times says, I truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Now, some believe this word generation is applied to the generation that's alive at the time of Israel's rebirth as a nation. And I've, I've actually even preached that. 1948, Israel became a nation again to, to the shock and surprise of the world. And I think you can make a real good case for saying that when Jesus says this generation will not pass away until, all, until the end comes, literally, you can make a great case for the generation being that which was alive when Israel was reborn, 1948. And that being the case, a biblical generation is anywhere from 40 to 100 years, so do the math. We are in the last, last, last days. But there's another possibility. And I throw this out to you, and I think it's probably both. But the word generation there may also apply specifically to Israel itself. Listen again. Truly I say to you, this generation, this genia in the Greek, this nation of people will not pass away until God has taken care of all these things. In other words, Israel will not pass away. The Lord will not allow it to happen. And we can see historically that he has held the nation together, even in dispersion throughout the world. God has kept the heart of the Jewish people. This generation will not pass away. But they did, as you know, go into a time of unparalleled dispersion, as we begin to see now. Verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and all his might, how he fought and how he recovered for Israel, Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son became king in his place. Get down to verse 8 of chapter 15. In the 38th year of Azariah king of Judah, Zechariah, now this is Israel's 14th king, Zechariah the son of Jeroboam became king over Israel and Samaria for six months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Then Shalom, Israel's 15th king, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him before the people and killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, are they, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. This is the word of the Lord which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel, and so it was. Shalom, verse 13, the son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned one month in Samaria. Then verse 14, Menachem, the son of Gadi, went up from Terzah and came to Samaria and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him and became king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and his conspiracy which he made, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. After Jeroboam II, six kings will rule Israel in the space of just 20 years. And only one of these six kings will die a natural death, and that's Menachem. And furthermore, after Zechariah, the king of Israel, that 14th king of Israel, back in verse 8, after him, the monarchy in Israel completely collapses, and as one writer put it, the successors of Zechariah were not so much kings as they were robbers and tyrants unworthy of the august name of kings. What's happening in Israel? It's falling apart. It is coming undone. And we see it before our very eyes. Verse 16, Then Menachem struck Tipsha and all who were in it and its borders from Terzah, because they did not open to him. Therefore he struck it and ripped up all its women who were with child. We want to talk about brutality. And by the way, Muhammad did the same type of thing. But this Menachem, why would he do this to this, this city of, of, of Tipsah? 
Why, why go about? Because the city would not open to him. They would not open the gate. They would not recognize. No doubt they heard about his conspiracy and his murder of Shalom. And they said, we're not going to have anything to do with you. And so he took all of his might and he busted down the gate and he took the city and wiped it out and he skewered even the pregnant women in that city. Verse 17, In the 39th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Menachem, the son of God, he became king over Israel and he reigned ten years in Samaria. Longest reign at that time. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Pull, verse 19, the king of Assyria. Pull, by the way, is known by another name. Cheryl, you'll love this name, Tiglath-Pileser III. Which was a famous, famous king in, in history and in antiquity. He was king of Assyria. And we have writings and we have historical proof of Tiglath-Pileser III. It's a great name for those of you. Penelope, if you're looking, you were talking about a name for your, for your little boy. Tiglath. Call him Tigger for short. It's perfect. Okay? But he was also called Pole. This was another name. And he had some pull against this Menachem. It says he came against the land and Menachem gave pull a thousand talents of silver, that would be 37 tons, so that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his rule. And then Menachem exacted the money from Israel, even all, from all the mighty men of wealth, more heavily taxing the rich. See, that's what happens when a country's beginning to go down. No more comments than that, but you can think about that. From each man, 50 shekels of silver to pay the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria returned and did not remain there in the land. What is happening? Menachem is becoming a puppet ruler under Assyria. The looming dark shadow of Assyria is on the doorstep, the back porch literally, of Israel. And is going to come down and wipe the people out. This is stage one. He gets financial control over Israel, this Tiglath-Pileser III. And Menachem buys into it. He just wants to be king. So he taxes the people heavily and pays them off. Verse 21, Now the rest of the acts of Menachem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Menachem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son, became king in his place. Now we have the 17th king of Israel, verse 23. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menachem, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Then Pekah, son of Remaliah, his officer, conspired against him and struck him in Samaria in the castle of the king's house with Argob and Ariah, and with him were fifty men of the Gileadites, and he killed him and became king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Verse 27. Now we get to the 18th king of Israel. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, that's Uzziah, toward the end of his reign, Pekah, son of Remaliah, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. Now, something you need to understand, and in the handouts I've given you, sometimes it doesn't add up. Like it'll say that a king reigns 16 years, but when you look at the, the actual dates, it, it doesn't fit. That's because a lot of these reigns were overlapping. For example, when Uzziah had leprosy and was put away, his son Jotham became king in his place, but Uzziah was still king. So Jotham's reign, and, and the dates that you see, or the, or the amount of time that you see on the handouts I gave you, and by the way, there are more back there if you didn't get one, the amount of time is the time that that king reigned by himself. But he, he may have reigned longer because of overlapping uh, co-regency. So the actual rule of this Pekah over Israel by himself was eight years. 
A total of eight years. Verse 29 says, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, verse 29, came and captured Ejon and Abel, Beth, Maacah, and Genoa, and Kadesh, and Hatzor, and Gilead, and Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria, and it has begun. The captivity of Israel. And Hoshea, verse 30, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him and put him to death and became king in his place in the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And that brings us to the last king of Israel, who is Hoshea. And Hoshea will be the last. And he will die. And Israel will go into captivity. Hoshea reigned nine years paying tribute to Assyria until Assyria dropped the hammer and all Israel went into exile. I want you to think about something as we conclude all of this tonight. Have you ever, in, in the malls, it used to be real popular, I haven't seen them in a while, but they had those, those kind of vortex, a lot of times they were bright colors, like a bright yellow vortex, and you take a penny and you start it around the outside and it start going around and you go faster and faster until it ultimately drops in the hole in the center. That's what's happening. That's what we see happening in Israel. And it's interesting, we begin 1 Kings and we look at you know, King Saul and King David and King Solomon. And, and a lot of times, in fact, the whole book of 1 Kings just brings us through Saul and David. We get to 2 Kings and we have Solomon and then the kingdom divides. And things begin, as we're traveling around this spiral, this vortex, things begin to speed up. To go faster and faster and faster. And I tell you that just to say this. Doesn't it feel like time is speeding up today? Doesn't it just seem like, first of all, there's not enough time to do anything. We thought all the technology would slow it down. We thought it would give us peace. I got out of the car today and I held in one hand I had my iPod and in the other hand my, my cell phone and in my ear was, was a little listening device and I'm thinking, I am teched out here. I don't even have any more hands to carry the technology. You know, and I took it all in and I plugged in my iPod to my little iPod dock and I turned on my computer and, you know, I mean, it's just we live in this, in this technological kind of freakish world. Jesus said it would speed up. Jesus said this is exactly what the last days would be like. I was talking with a friend just this last week who was, who was saying again, boy, I just, I love to talk about Jesus coming, but there are times when I haven't been talking about it and haven't been studying it or listening to sermons about it that I start to just get lethargic and think, well... I don't know, are we really? Are we really in the last days? Well, as you might have guessed, that set me off. So I just started ticking off all these reasons why I'm convinced that we are in the last days. And one of the biggest ones is the way time is going. We are spinning faster and faster and faster until that bottom drops out. That's what happened to Israel. Israel is a picture for us, gang, a type of exactly what's happening to the larger world around us as we're going faster. Corey, you wanted a prophecy update? Listen up, son. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. John wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. The phrase has bothered some people. Must soon take place, but it's been 2,000 years. So how is that possible? That these things are going to happen soon, but 2,000 years have gone by. Did we miss it? Did something go wrong? Those of you who have studied through Revelation, you know this phrase, soon take place. It's the Greek word in taxi. And it's like being in a taxi because it's where we get our word tachometer. 
meaning RPMs, meaning as a like a tachometer revs up as you as you go faster, and then you downshift, and it revs up, and you downshift, and it revs up. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says these things must soon take place. In taxi, literally means occurring with increasing or sudden rapidity. What it says is, and what John is writing is, that the revelation that he's showing his bondservants, the things that must soon take place, at the time of the end, we will get to a point where just like traveling around that vortex, it goes faster and faster and faster until we're in a time of great rapidity, where things are moving at breakneck speed. First gear on a car. You know, kind of grinds and starts a little slowly. You downshift into second. You go a little bit faster. Third gear, faster. Fourth gear. And then you get into overdrive. And and that's where I believe we are time-wise today. I think we're in overdrive. We are cruising. Think about this. When Solomon received the kingdom from his father David, a shattered Israel was unthinkable. The kingdom was great. It was strong. The boundaries and borders were secure. Solomon took it and it expanded farther even than it did under David. It was the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth under King Solomon and the richest of any kingdom that has ever existed. And it only took a few young hundred years to wipe it out. Which unnerves me for America a bit, being completely honest. But as Israel came down to its last days as a nation, as we just read in that last chapter, things began to move. They went from king to king to king to king to king. And attacks were coming. And suddenly Tiglath-Pileser III is coming down from Assyria. And he's, he's asking for money. And pay him off. Quick, pay him off. We've got to protect ourselves. Next thing you know, he's starting to chew up northern Israel. He takes the entire Galilee. He takes Naphtali. He takes these people into captivity. And the rest of Israel is just, oh no, what's going to happen? Hoshea becomes king. And for nine years he tries to appease Assyria. And it doesn't work. And all of Israel falls. And it happens so suddenly and so fast. And nobody saw it come and history will repeat itself the Bible says in Daniel chapter 12 verse 5 Daniel says I looked and behold two men were standing one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river and one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river how long will it be until the end of these wonders he said I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river And he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, which is, in translation, three and a half years. A time, times, and and half a time. Three and a half years. And he says, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Do you realize that Israel has to be shattered again? And will be. As time counts down, Israel will ultimately be shattered, just like it was by Assyria. Jerusalem will fall. The Lord says, two thirds are not even going to make it out alive. One third I'm going to bring through the fire, I'm going to refine them, and I'm going to take them to that place in the wilderness, possibly Petra, Selah, and protect them for a time, times, and half a time. Israel's last days as a nation back in 722 B.C. are a type and shadow of what the Bible describes as coming not only to Israel again, but to all of planet Earth. 
Matthew 24, verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. And Revelation 6 describes global war. It describes famines. It describes death and martyrdom and terrorism in Revelation chapter 6. And we see in Israel's last days back then a startling increase in wickedness and in murder and in strife until that nation goes down. What do we see in America today? You cannot turn on the news without seeing an increase of wickedness. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now I'm not trying to freak anybody out here because just like Jesus said, don't be frightened. These things are going to happen. You're okay. You are protected. You are not destined for wrath but for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so hallelujah, we know that what we have coming is a glorious and wonderful thing. But the reality gang that we see in Israel is that is not what the, what the world has to look forward to. Not yet. The world will go through tribulation. Because lawlessness is increased, Jesus said. Most people's love will grow cold. That, that's where we began tonight. Love. The love of David. And we've been called to love. Not to judge. We've not been called for any other purpose but to bring the love of Jesus into this world. In the way we treat each other. And in the way we look to the Lord. We are called to love. It's the gold star standard of David that we are called to in these last days. Things are picking up speed. Time is moving toward that inexorable, inescapable conclusion when the Lord will reign all things under His authority once again. And when that happens, I want to be one of those who cry out the words of David in Psalm 18.1. I love you, Lord. I love you. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray, Lord, you know, as things speed up all around us, one of the things I want to pray for is that you would slow down our lives in your presence. That we as your children would spend more time sitting before you. Father, we just... We ask that you will make us different than the world, so different that by our love we'll be known as your disciples, and by our peace and our trust, Lord, people will see you in us. And as time winds down, Father, we pray that our love would wind up and increase to the coming of Jesus Christ and our calling home, and we look forward to that so much. So we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.